we're doing an Old Testament survey, which means we're moving through the Old Testament pretty quickly and moving through trunks of Scripture, just trying to give you an overview of the Old Testament um, that, that uh, will help you sort of hopefully put things into perspective. We did Genesis and Exodus so far. Remember with Genesis, the thing you need to remember about Genesis, there's four major events in the beginning uh, of Genesis, uh, and that's creation, and then the, the fall and the flood and the Tower of Babel. And all that happens in the first 10 chapters or so. And then the next, the rest of that book, the following 40 chapters are about the patriarchs. Uh, and so it's about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then finally about Joseph. So um, that kind of helps you understand what Genesis is. Exodus, we talked a lot about Exodus last week. Uh, there's 40 chapters in Exodus. And Exodus is this very important theme throughout the scripture because it's a, it's a picture of our own exodus, which is deliverance from slavery and bondage into the promised land. And in effect, that's what we have. We've, we've been delivered um, in, in Christ from slavery and bondage to sin, and, and we have access now into the kingdom of God, the, the promised land. So um, it's that picture, and that theme really runs throughout the Scripture. Um, we, start, we talked about that quite a bit last week. Now we're into Leviticus. Leviticus... Um, so it's, it's, Leviticus and Numbers is where a lot of times people stop reading some of the Old Testament. And it's really fascinating reading, though. So um, I would encourage you to just in, persevere and, and read through it. Um, but Leviticus contains, in, for the Old Testament anyway, the way that they had access to God uh, and fellowship with God. Uh, and it was how that was going to work. And, and that all comes up in Leviticus as you read it. And... Um, it's really about establishing the Levites and the high priest and all that that means in the process. So let's kind of move our way through. Um, we get up to chapter 8 of Leviticus, and it's uh, the preparation of Aaron and his sons for the high priest and the priestly offices in the process. And then in chapter 9, the Levitical priesthood begins. Uh, Leviticus 9.24 says, um, Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. So remember now this, this, uh, this group of folks, Israel, um, a pretty large group, had been in slavery for over 400 years in bondage to the Egyptians. Uh, they'd been dramatically rescued. In the Exodus, um, they, they'd witnessed the series of ten plagues that had happened. They'd seen God move. Um, this was uh, them learning now that they could trust God this whole process. And he'd taken them into the wilderness and he'd been providing for them supernaturally. All of that was so they could learn about trusting God. And, and now he's continuing to demonstrate his, his presence to them and uh, his concern for them and his love for them. And he's, he's, he's trying to organize them into the um, sort of society that they're to live in, and that's what's going on as, as worshipers of God, as, as followers of God. And um, the people fail miserably, like most of us do, but, uh, but he's continuing to make himself known in the process. And so um, he, he's setting in place now the Levitical priesthood and what that looks like. Uh, and, and so they had um, th- the ways they had... Uh, been instructed, the Levitical priests, how they were supposed to approach God and how they were supposed to offer sacrifices and all these things. Well, very quickly, in, in the next chapter, in chapter 10, 
Um, two of Aaron's sons offer an unauthorized offering, and they, they don't survive. Uh, that's a kind way of saying it. Let me read you the verses. Leviticus 10, 1 through 6. Aaron's son Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. They did it the way they wanted to instead of doing it the way God wanted it done. Does that sound like anything to anybody? You've all done that, right? That's sin. We've all done that. Okay. So, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses then said to Aaron, this is what, so there was two of Aaron's sons. This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. And Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them still in their tunics outside the camp as Moses ordered. Then Moses said to Aaron and his son Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair become unkempt. And do not tear your clothes, or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the house of Israel, may mourn for these, those that the Lord has destroyed by fire. So Moses, and you might think this isn't a big deal, but Moses stops Aaron from tearing his tunic. Now, uh, it, w- it would have been a common practice as a sign of mourning and grief and anguish that they would tear, they would tear their clothes um, in the process. It was a very common thing. But the high priests... Uh, had a commandment from the Lord. In Leviticus 21.10, it says this, The high priest, the one among his brothers who has had the anointing oil poured on his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments, must not let his hair become unkempt or tear his clothes. So um, even though Aaron most likely wanted to do uh, what would have been sort of custom at that point, which is to tear his clothing in the loss of his sons, um, Moses told him not to, and he didn't, because this was how they were to act. They were set apart. They were, they were, they were supposed to do things differently. And you go, okay, what's going on? Well, there's something significant that happens in Matthew 26, or 64 and 65. And this is when Jesus is in the mock trials, and he's standing before the high priest, uh, verse 64. Yes, uh, it is as you say, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. So, so the high priest did what he was commanded not to do. And it's sort of a symbolic ending of the Levitical priesthood at that moment. It's done. Because Jesus is the great high priest. But it's a picture of what was to happen as that takes place. So... so th- Throughout the scripture, there's all these little things that tie together that, that you, you sort of, they're, they're important because they're, they mean something, they're, they're included. The scripture, remember this, the Bible is God-breathed. That's what it says in Second Timothy, the, the scripture is God-breathed. It's the very breath of God, the word of God. And, and none of the words are wasted. Everything has a purpose in there. And so sometimes we don't always understand it, and that's when we need to dig in and really pray. And ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate and, and show us. And we need to study and we need to research and we need to go deeper because it's that important. Uh, you know, so my, my constant sort of encouragement is read the book and continue to press in and continue to read it. And if you don't understand something, study and research and pray. 
so that, that you can continue to have it opened up because throughout your entire lives as you're reading the scripture, it will continually be open before you. That's the amazing thing about the Bible. It's unlike any other book. It's, it's supernatural. It's, 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 it's not just a book that was written by a bunch of, of people. It was, it was written by, by men, but inspired by God supernaturally. And so it, there's things in it that just are mind-blowing. So, so that's significant that that's there. And what we're going to learn from Levitical priesthood is, is you know, ultimately it's, it's all, when you, when you read Hebrews, that, you know, it's, it's Jesus who, who ultimately takes care of the final sacrifice and does everything needs to happen. But there's all these things going on in Leviticus that are pointing to what Jesus is going to do. So you, you need to see it. And also I think when you read through um, uh, a lot of the Old Testament, you're, you're going to be really thankful for grace and uh, for what it means and for what we have in Christ. Um, because they, they, were, they were getting shadows back then and, and just partials. And, and we get the whole thing in Christ. And so it's amazing uh, in, in that respect. So then in Leviticus, there's chapter 23. Uh, if you were um, a Jewish person in the, the Old Testament times, if you didn't know any other scripture, you would know Leviticus chapter 23. You'd know it backwards and forwards, inside out and upside down. Um, uh, it, it would be that important to you. you. You might wonder why. Well, in Leviticus 23, <clears throat> it summarizes the seven feasts that Israel was commanded to observe. And it lays out their time frame for them every year of when certain things are going to happen. And, and so they would know when these feasts were going to uh, take place. And, and so they could they could get the first one going and they could count from there. And they would know when... The, the biggest one to them was number six. They're all important, but number six was important to them because that was the Day of Atonement. And if they missed the Day of Atonement, they were cut off from their people. Um, the Day of Atonement is still a big deal. Um, Rosh Hashanah, and you, you will see that it's usually very well observed by, um, by, by Jewish folks as this whole thing still is on them. And um, it was in that day. So, so they would know... Uh, Leviticus 23, so they knew when things were going to happen and what the timing was. And the seven feasts that they were commanded to observe every year were Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. And they they f- fell at points of the year in very interesting ways. So um, the first three, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, all happened over the course of a weekend, in effect. Um, and, and just in a few days. And what's so amazing about the feasts and why you should spend time reading about them and, and spending time in the Old Testament looking at them is that they are all a foreshadowing of what's going to happen when Jesus comes. And so, um, so the first three, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits, Jesus fulfills perfectly on the dates and time in the calendar when those events were celebrated, Jesus is there and he's actually making them happen. Remember, Passover is about a lamb sacrificed whose blood would be put over the doorposts and, and cover us from the angel of death. And so the crucifixion takes place, Passover. Unleavened bread happens the very next day. And you also know that, that Jesus said, uh, you know, this is my body broken for you uh, and I am the bread of life. 
and other things that he said relating to that. He's, so he not only fulfills Passover, he fulfills unleavened bread perfectly, which falls on the next day. He gets both of those um, perfectly on dates and times in the calendar. And then first fruits comes a couple of days later. Interestingly enough, first fruits. Uh, and so um, the first fruits was, uh, it was a harvest offering. And it would have been the very first uh, harvest of the year. And it would have been the smallest harvest of the year. It was just when the first thing started happening, there would be a little harvest right off the bat in harvest season. And um, people go, well, well, you know, it was, it's, it's Jesus. And Jesus is actually called first fruits and sometimes and related in that way. But the first fruits was this small offering. Well, remember when Jesus uh, goes to the cross and then he defeats death and he rises again? And then after that, it's the scripture says there's this very obscure event that happens in Matthew 27 that people sort of dismiss. But it says that uh, about uh, 500 people came out of the graves and were seen by various folks around town. You ever seen that? It's because then people go, well, that's kind of weird. Why is that happening? Well, that was a first fruits offering. So it's perfectly fulfilled on the right day and the right time with what happens. And so he's so Jesus is fulfilling these seven feasts. The, the idea was that the people of Israel, always observing these feasts, would get it when Messiah came. They would see that it was actually happening before them. And, and some did, but most didn't, because most of them hardened their hearts to all the other stuff that Jesus had done. Uh, and they'd already decided they didn't like the package. But now he's dropping in and he's hitting feasts on days when they're supposed to happen. Well, the fourth feast is Pentecost. Pentecost would be 50 days after this. Seven, 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 49 days, 50 days. Pentecost on the 50th day. And, and so um, Pentecost comes around. What happens on Pentecost, the first one? The Holy Spirit comes, right? Well, it's another fulfillment of a feast. The Holy Spirit comes. And Pentecost was also a harvest festival. It was a second harvest. It wasn't the big harvest. that would be at the end of the summer. It was, the, it was bigger than the first one. And, and it was another harvest. And what happens at Pentecost? 3,000 men are added to the church, plus women and children. Big deal. Thousands of people come, and the church kicks off that way. It's the, it's the next fulfillment of a feast, a prophetic feast, and that happens at Pentecost. So now of the seven feasts that they were supposed to observe, four of them have been perfectly fulfilled by Jesus coming and doing what he did and leaving and the Holy Spirit coming. Four of them happened. Three are left. Well, the, the next one is trumpets. And um, trumpets is the big harvest. And it's at the end of the summer season. It's the end of the, when the, the this would be the biggest harvest. And what harvest, what, what it looked like is when, when at the end of it, they knew it was the, the time to celebrate, there would be a trumpet sound. And so that's what it's all about. The, and our New Testament is filled with events that are going to happen at trumpet sound. All right? It signals that, that Jesus is coming back. The harvest is over. Uh, talk, you know, in the scripture, it talks about a trumpet will sound and, and some are going to respond and some won't. They're going to ignore it. And we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And, and it starts tying into the trumpets being sounded when a groom comes back for the, for the bridegroom. And there's all these things that are happening throughout the scripture. But we're waiting on trumpets. And so we're living in this time that, you know, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We're in this time where Jesus is w- waiting his return. The father's waiting for him to come back because of this period of mercy so that the harvest can be plentiful so that people can come into the kingdom. But we know he's coming back and we know what's going to happen. And, and so, you know, part of the reason we know that is four of them we've already prophetically fulfilled. You can look and see that he's fulfilled them. So, you know, he's going to do these other ones. 
Um, so at trumpet sound, he's going to come back. Then we have atonement, which is the day of judgment. And then you have tabernacles, which is a picture of us being with the Lord forever. So, you know, <coughs> where, where we kind of, we wonder what that's going to look like uh, in Christ. So Jesus took all our sin and he paid for all that stuff. Because some people, I, I talk to some people sometimes who are sometimes worried about the day when they get to be face to face, whatever that looks like, or a throne room time, because they're, they're concerned that all their stuff is going to be laid out before everybody they've ever done. And I've got to tell you that Jesus paid for all that stuff on the cross, so that's not going to happen. At, at, our, at our time of judgment, it's just going to be about, um, for believers, if you know Jesus, it's just going to be about what we've, what we've done in the kingdom. There's not going to be any shame or embarrassment or any of those things um, in that process. But, but it's in these two where sometimes people wonder, you know, where I sort of fall on what happens when Jesus comes back. Is it going to happen before the tribulation or during the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, or what's going on, or we have the tribulation. But when I see the feast being fulfilled, I would say that the best way that the feast laid out is that because of the trumpet situation, that Jesus comes back for his bride, which is the believers. And somehow in that passage where it talks about us being caught up, that, that the church at that point is somehow out of the picture in some supernatural way. And then this season of time goes, there's that last little opportunity for people to come to Christ um, be, before the final return when, when he's going to come and set everything out and the day of judgment will happen and that will be there. And then after that, the, the um, millennial time kicks in and, and we're with him and he's with us and all that happens forever. But it's certainly worth a study of knowing what's going on and looking through those to see what's happening because it's fascinating reading. You get into Leviticus chapters uh, 26, and there's the, um, the, the sort of, you, you could call them the if-but principles. And, and what that means is that if, if they do certain things in verses 3 to 13, there's all these great promises that go along. But if they don't do those things, there's all these consequences that come. And unfortunately, they, they all went for the consequences. And I look back and think of that, but, but we do the same thing. It's called sin. We have a tendency to do our own thing. But, but they had all these amazing things that were promised them if they would do what they were supposed to do, and yet they chose not to, by and large. And that's Leviticus. We're doing good. Numbers. If, if, you, if you make it through Leviticus, Numbers will be the place where you stop reading the Old Testament. <laughs> and you'll pick it up like in the Psalms or something. You're like, yeah, okay, I'm done with that. But Numbers is fascinating, too, because um, uh, Numbers is where we start getting, you know, the, 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 they're moving now towards the promised land and what that looks like. And so it's the preparation for that. And, and so there's sort of three sections in Numbers. The first ten chapters are the preparation from the march from Sinai. Uh, and then, then, then the next ten chapters are the history of the wanderings. And then the final 15 chapters or so are things that happen east of the Jordan River. Um, when you're reading the scripture, sometimes if you, you may or may not want to know this little fact, but anything east of the Jordan is known as the Transjordan, and anything west of the Jordan is known as the Cisjordan, because things are divided by the Jordan River for them in this process. And also, um, you, in Numbers, you read about the tabernacle. You need to remember that the tabernacle is the symbol of God's presence, 
And the Ark of the Covenant, we've talked about this, it's a symbol of God's throne. It's, the, it's like a picture of God's throne. Remember the, the Ark of the Covenant, the way it was laid out, it was, you know, about six feet long. And um, the lid, um, they would put the blood of the uh, sacrifice for the atonement of people's sins. And there was a carved cherubim at either end looking towards that. And that was a picture of the mercy seat. Uh, and, and so that was happening at the at the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, I think not long ago I told you that that's exactly the, the scene that Mary looks into um, after the crucifixion uh, when, when Jesus' body's gone. But she looks into the tomb and there's an angel at either end and the, his, his, uh, the linens he was in is there and they're blood-stained. And it's a picture now that, that we have access into the throne room of God. Nobody else. In, in the Old Testament, anybody that saw that perished except for the high priest. But we, we have access now in Christ. So you start to read numbers, and there's a lot of numbers. Chapter 1, so all of the men are numbered for war except for the Levites. Um, they, they're not counted. They're, they're appointed for ministry of taking care of the tabernacle. And um, Aaron's sons, uh, Aaron's son Eleazar was put in charge of all the Levites. Um, Numbers 3.32, the chief leader of the Levites was Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest. He was appointed over those who were responsible for the care of the sanctuary. So this was their responsibility. Um, that's what the Levites did, so they weren't numbered for war in the process. And Numbers 4 actually gives you the verse where, where it says that no one can look at the Ark of the Covenant and live except the high priest, so nobody has access. The, except for the high priest. And the high priest had access once a year in, into this thing. And the preparation that he had to undergo in order to, to go in to atone for the sins of the people was almost, there was, a, there was an entire washing ritual. He couldn't have any blemishes of any type. He, it, was, it was amazing to see what happened. Um, and so anytime that I, I stop and think about how amazing it is that we have access now to the very throne room of the living God. We have access 24-7 because of Christ. The scripture tells us that. What an amazing gift that is. And that sometimes I, I think we, um, we, we forget how incredible this is. That this is what we have access to and we, we, we don't take advantage of it. That we can literally go into the presence of the living God, the one who created everything, and he wants us to. So we need to be encouraged to do that. And I, sometimes looking back and seeing that they didn't have that access and that to get access once a year took, uh, it was a moon launch, and yet we have access because of what Jesus did. So, so you know, what the sacrifice of what Jesus did was so amazing that it made this access possible. Numbers chapter 11, and all the people are complaining again. That never happens with us. <laughs> Verse 4 through 6, The rabble with them began to crave other food. So the issue is they're tired of manna, which is heaven bread. And listen, and listen what they start wailing. If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Except that we were bound in slavery. Other than that cost, no cost at all. Fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. That's what they were mad at God about. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Wow. 
wow, what happens if we lose sight of how amazing God's provision is and we start thinking that we had it better before. And yet, we all have a tendency. Remember, we've talked about this. We have a tendency to want to get pulled back to the wrong side of the Red Sea. That once we're delivered from it, there's the enemy at work trying to rip us back over there. And we go along with it sometimes because we get tired of manna somehow. And we want the mess that came from the life of slavery seems attractive to us somehow. It's such a, such a trick and a trap of the enemy. Um, but it happens. So, you know, I, I, I read about these. I think I've told you this. I used to go, how could that ever happen? But I get it now. I get how that happens. And it doesn't take long. We, we see miracles and then we, we, we see God's, we can be settled in his presence and something happens and all of a sudden we're unsettled. But God's good. Then they send 12 spies into the promised land. Numbers 13. Let me read you that. 27 and following. They gave Moses, so they sent 12 guys. They gave Moses his account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. They brought back some big fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We have even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours the living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers, grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we look the same to them. You, you catch that last statement? They don't have any idea how they looked to the enemy. The enemy didn't know they were there. They were spies. But what they're telling everybody is, these guys are huge and we're, we're little in our own eyes and we can't do it. So what are they forgetting that, that they should have learned in this entire process of being in the wilderness and watching God move and provide over and over and over and over and over and over and over? Is that God's God. And if God says go and it's yours, that's what you do. But, but out of the 12, only two said they would go and those 10 convinced everybody else not to go. And uh, in the next chapter, the people rebel and what they're going to do is, what they often want to do, they decide to take it out on the leaders. And so they're about to stone Moses and Joshua. Chapter 14:10. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. So um, that would get their attention. The glory of the Lord would show up. They'd also seen the glory of the Lord show up, and, and they'd seen a few people consumed by fire as well. So uh, that would generally shut down the... The, the rabble for a moment or so, but to get now that now they they respond in fear, but they should have been re- responding in love and in respect for who God was, and they should have just trusted Him and gone with Him. But fear gets in there and it makes them change, and so they grumble and they complain. Moses, bless him, um, he prays for these people again. Moses spent his entire life praying for rebellious people. Numbers 14, 17 through 19. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. I love it that Moses prays back stuff to the Lord that the Lord has said. (laughs) Moses is reminding him. 
Yet he, he, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Had you've been, you've been pardoning them, even though they continue to rebel, will you do it again? And God does. God forgives them. It's God's nature. But there's a consequence in this case. And the consequence is that none of them get to see the promised land. The Lord replies, verse 20, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. Not one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. And so only Joshua and Caleb and apparently the Levites who weren't counted um, in chapter 1 and the people under 20 at that point in time, they're the only ones that are going to go in. Everybody else is going to die before they make it into the promised land. 29 through 38. In this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years older or more who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb, son of um, Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies, will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your body lies in the desert. For 40 years... One year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in the desert. Here they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men, responsible for spreading the bad report about the land, were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. So, um, so they, they spend a lot of time wandering around waiting for that chunk of time. So, um, so you see that, and that's kind of in the middle of numbers, and then we'll get closer to the promised land towards the end of it. But the, I, I think, you know, when you read the Old Testament, like I said, always look for Jesus in it and, and always see, you know, how sort of rebellion works its way in and, and how we often find ourselves, if we're, you know, when we're being honest with ourselves, we have that tendency. That's why we, we need to be always yielding to the Holy Spirit. We need to be pressing in. We need to spend that time with the Lord in prayer and, and uh, in, in, in reading the Scripture so that we know all the more that we can trust Him. And, and then be thankful. Always so thankful. You know, people say, oh, how am I going to be thankful? I'm, I'm so thankful for the grace and mercy of God every day because of how often I fall short. And, and for, for, I'm so grateful for what Jesus has done to make a way for us to be reconciled to God and that I, I always think of justification, how, how what an awesome gift that, that God chooses to see me now in the perfection of His Son. Because I've responded to the gospel. And, and even though I know there's so much left to be done in me, that the process of sanctification that the Holy Spirit is doing and will continue to do and, until I'm with Jesus, um, I, and yet 
how amazing it is to be reconciled because I'm just like these folks so often. I just you know, fall that short all the time. And yet, the faithfulness of God in what we have. And so, um, when, you, when you look at it, this is why like, Jesus is such a... He's the great high priest because of what he's done. See, he's made a way for that to happen for us. That's why, the, you know, his priesthood so far exceeds the Levitical one. It's why we have and live under grace and why we can now look back and see that, you know, we're not, we're not under the law. He's fulfilled it. That Remember, the, the, the Ten Commandments were never meant to be a way that you earned your freedom and salvation. He'd, he'd already, they'd, already, we, they'd already been given that when they got the Ten Commandments. It was a love thing. It's, it's about loving God. Uh, all in, it's about loving your neighbors, yourself. That's what those things are about. And, and taking all that in and hanging on to it in the right tension is where we find life. So anyway, lots to look into there, but I'll be done. I'm going to finish right there because uh, it's a good place to finish. And we'll, we'll pick it up with Deuteronomy next week. So another fascinating book. But we'll get there. If you're watching my video, thanks for watching. Come and see us when you can. And God bless you. Thanks for watching this broadcast from Keys Vineyard Community Church in Big Pine Key, Florida. Be sure to like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. For more information, log on to keysvineyard.com. We'll see you next time.